The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It is as if the state has forgotten that our children are the citizens too. They are full citizens of Ireland and are entitled to things in their own right and they shouldn't have to depend on us to do it. Because as I said before, I want my life back. I'm sorry, I have saved the state millions at this stage. To put your own in a nursing home, well, in a place that's suitable for her. We were told three years ago for 200,000 a year. Well, on that counting, I have had, a, since she was 18, that's 14 years ago, I have saved for 2.8 million, I think, as a rough sort of guesstimate. I think I'm entitled to get something back for that. I really do. Hello, and you're very welcome to this latest instalment of Inside Story, a podcast series from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. If you're a regular subscriber to our Inside Politics podcast, then Inside Story will be showing up in your regular feed from now on. Some of the subjects we cover will also be directly political, but we will also be looking through a somewhat wider lens. Each week we'll talk to Irish Times journalists about the background stories they've been working on for the print Irish Times or on irishtimes.com, and we hope to offer... A bit more insight into the stories themselves and what the process of telling them has involved. This week we want to look at an article which has elicited a huge reaction since it was published five days ago on social media and on irishtimes.com and which seems to have prompted a much needed debate and a number of follow-ups already across Irish media. Rosita Boland, you're very welcome. Hi Hugh. Tell us about your article about the Powell family and how it came about. So last Saturday, we ran my interview with the Johan Powell, who lives in Featherdown Sea, and their story is that they are um, carers for their daughter, um, who is now 32, Siobhan. And so it was a conversation about the challenges and the reality of caring for their daughter and they who, for whom they have been trying for some years to get a residential placement and so far been unsuccessful. And I think one of the reasons that, that people responded to it so strongly is that Johan was incredibly honest about the challenges that she and her husband Alan have faced in caring for their daughter over 32 years and a caring uh, process which has no end in sight um, and how difficult it is to be looking into the future without any um, without any possibility even of a residential place for their daughter and in the process their own lives as two individual human beings not just as parents and carers um, has been put on hold effectively for for her for 32 years. So I want to dig into a little bit more of that in a minute. But first of all, just what brought you to the Powells and to Feathered and see what were you looking for or what came to your attention that brought you there? So as a, as a features writer, I'm always, you know, trying to come up with ideas that are interesting, usually human interest stories, often stories that try and put the human face on statistics. 
Um, so I was interested for some time in doing a story about something that people uh, talk about a lot, which is people who are parents of disabled children, whether they're young children or whether they're children who are grown adults, they voice a fear about what will happen to them on their death. So that's actually the story that I wanted to do. I wanted to find um, one of those people who had been cared for by their parents um, far into their adult life. And where were they now once their parents um, and carers were dead? So that's the story that I really wanted to do. And to try and find um, that case study, I went to uh, family carers and Catherine Cox is their sort of public face. Um, so we talked about it. She told me how hard it would be and um, I knew already that it would be hard and she explained that it's difficult to... There might be some remaining family members and they wouldn't want the case publicised because they might feel there's a guilt and a judgement on them for not actually stepping in and taking over the care once the parents die. And just how how really difficult it was going to be. all the sensitivities that you'll have in families at any time, and they're kind of, you know, enhanced or intensified by the by an experience of this sort. I suppose to be to be realistic. Yes. So so that wasn't. I'm still hoping to do that story, but instead, um, Catherine was aware of of the Powell family in Feathered and suggested that perhaps I give them a call and just talk to them about their situation. So I called, you know, I made a, an initial call and had quite a long conversation with Johan. And as soon as, you know, very early into the conversation, I got an instinct that it would be a really powerful interview because she was, she basically it, it was a counter-narrative um, what she was saying. I mean, a, a counter-narrative in that she was actually speaking out very distinctively and clearly about the really the I suppose it's it's a harsh word to some people but the reality of it is being a full-time carer for her is drudgery and boredom it doesn't mean that she doesn't love her daughter and I thought these are really strong statements they're not the kind of things that you usually hear people saying um, so I knew that going to spend time with them would really uh, repay interview time it's certainly not something you do on the phone and what did you find when you got down there so when I got down there, uh, I spent I spent much of much of one day there and part of the next day. And their so their situation is their daughter spends four to five days, depending on how tired she is at the end of the four days, at a centre in Wexford. The rest of the time and weekends, they're responsible for her care. They have three weeks respite a year. And so the first day I talked to both the Powells um, before Johan came back. I was there when she came back at at 3.30. And I found people who wanted to talk. They talk. Alan has a more... I suppose he, he was present. He was very happy that everything was being said. He let Johan do the talking and she had plenty to say. So I think one of the things that makes the article so unusual, maybe in an Irish context and why it it, uh, it hit home with so many people is the 
um, the honesty, really, and the taboo breaking of Johan and the way in which she talks about how she feels about the situation she's in. Yes, I mean she was she was incredibly honest, and for her, it's for her it's the reality of her situation, and she wanted to put that on the record. And I suppose whenever I whenever I'm interviewing somebody over a long period, you know, I I. I suppose I uh, I can kind of see the way the article is going to take shape in my head as I'm doing the interview. So all the way along, I explain to my interviewees how I'll be writing it and what I'll be doing. And um, I guess because I knew that Joanne was saying some things that were incredibly strong, that she could potentially have a quite a negative reaction from people. So from a, an ethical viewpoint, um, I made sure before I left that we had a long conversation about this. And are you really are you really sure about X sentence and Y sentence? And she really was. I mean, she was fully aware of possible consequences. And she said, you know, I've been. She said maybe even ten years ago I wouldn't have felt I could say these things. But I'm 32 years at this. This is my reality. And. I think one of the reasons that sort of was a catalyst for her to uh, be as honest as she was to me was um, for eight weeks this summer, uh, Siobhan was at home. She had some unspecified condition. Um, She was, you know, ill and had to be at home and which for most of the days meant she was sort of snuggled into Johanne on the chair where she is with her head under a rug. And she had to be there for pretty much eight weeks, just holding her daughter. They thought it was she only has one kidney and um, an undeveloped second kidney. So they thought it was perhaps a further deterioration of her kidney condition. So they brought her um, for more blood tests. And when they got the results, the doctor said to her, you know, actually nothing really has changed. And um, I'll see you in 10 years. And she said she came out and just had these extraordinarily conflicting emotions. And as he went out the door, he said to me, I see you in 10 years' time. And I was delighted I haven't got the news, but at the same time, the minute he said that, my heart sank and I thought, yeah, he's right. I will be here in 10 years. I will be no further ahead. I'll have no more life than I do now. I will have no closer to getting a home for Siobhan than I am now. I don't know that I'd be able for it. They had already been trying for some years to get a residential placement for Siobhan without any success. And I suppose most of the day-to-day of caring is you can't really see that far into the future. You're just dealing with the day-to-day. And she said, I can't. Can I do this for another 10 years? And so she began to you know, really question various things. So when my call came to her, it just came at a opportune time and that she was very ready to say the things that she had to say. And the sorts of things she says, really, it seems to me, I don't want to um, over paraphrase them. Anybody can read them on the on the website and I'd recommend that, that they do so. But really what they do is they, they, they put it up to all of us, I think, because sometimes with these stories, I find if I read them in the newspaper, um, I you know, they, they elicit some anger about the kind of the the inadequate nature of our health system and the political reasons for that and that can, you know, elicit various reactions but in this way, it seems to me Johanna is almost suggesting that we're almost all complicit 
in the way that we think about people in this situation. And that, that then is almost expressed through the way our health service works. In other words, we put people in this situation on a pedestal and we don't allow them off it and we don't give them an opportunity to get off it. Yes, and that's uh, that's uh, exactly the kind of things that she was saying. And it's not just, I suppose it's, it's a societal problem and that she she said one of the things she hates the most is, you know, apart from the condescending talk about religious based condescending talk about, you know, you'll get your reward in heaven, um, you know, that that the kind of easy admiration that people in society have for carers such as the Powells by labeling them as saints and heroes. And she said, I'm not a saint. You know, I can get angry. I can get sad, I get grumpy, I'm not a hero, I'm not a saint, I'm me and I want to be seen as a person and not just as a carer and it's really, really hard and, you know, the more people, i.e. society puts us on a pedestal and say how wonderful we are, we can't, we're not being allowed to get off it and actually express our opinions. And I suppose then that the further part of that is that the care system itself plugs into that and you have this irony is not the word bleak if it is an irony it's a particular irony it's a particularly bleak one which is that these people know that to come back to your original impulse for writing this article that w- should they you know become incapable of caring of their daughter through death or serious illness tomorrow the health service probably would step in yes and that's a bit of a unsolvable mystery or, con- or a conundrum the i mean something is going to have to happen to somebody who's in, in as dependent as their daughter is if they were both to just die in the morning or other people in their situation and part of the um, stress that that parents undergo is not knowing what is going to happen to their children and having a vague knowledge that there is something out there but not knowing what that will be not knowing how long the waiting list is I mean what 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 many, many people want is to know where their child is going to go before they die and that there is a transition time where they can go and spend time in that residential placement, where they can be visited by their parents, where their parents can, you know, either, um, I mean, not even die, but, you know, just be allowed to age into old age without the incredible physical and mental strains that caring for adult children puts on them and that that really is for that's a systemic problem that's a government problem that's been handed to various departments down the years and perhaps it's one that society needs to take up as well because we're all in some way complicit in having let this go on as long as it has. There's also an incredibly opaque system there, which they, which Johan also talks about, the response to their requests for additional care and the way in which those requests are handled. Yes, I mean, I was there, as I said, for the best part of two days and I saw the mountains of paperwork that they've had even just in the last couple of years in their attempts to try and get uh, Siobhan into a placement. I mean, there were literally, I'd say foot high um, piles of documents on the table in front of us and I did go through some of them I would have had to either take them away or spend an awful lot longer than I did there but the it's it's almost crushing in itself the sort of the paperwork the administration the endless um, 
opaque language even that's used by um, government bodies that's kind of I'm, sometimes I couldn't understand what, what was being written in these letters and it's not an easy system to navigate at the at the best of times and just just even by looking without even actually having read any of the documentation you could see by the sheer size of it how challenging the whole situation is so the article was published last weekend and as i said at the outset there was um there was a huge reaction to it what kind of reaction was there so i suppose there was a, the reaction from readers who i suppose there were two two quite distinct kind of reactions one uh, was from readers who didn't have any direct experience of having to care for somebody who were, I think, startled, almost shocked by the honesty um, of the voice of, of a carer who said, you know, this is a drudgery and I don't want to do it anymore. Um, I think it really made people think about what their situation must be like. And uh, so there was a really strong response from people who previously had no experience at all of that world and the other was from the community of people who are carers or who have family members in that situation and lots of people um, emailed me who with their own stories and they're obviously every story is different every situation is different but the commonality in all of them is that they were desperate to be heard and they all picked up on the last uh, the last piece of the interview that I did, which was the you know the Powells gave this interview because they hoped that it would start a national conversation about what we're now calling cares in prices. So some of those stories are going to be in the Irish Times on Friday and some on Saturday. There are many more of them out there and uh, and the one for example I've read the one which is being published um, shortly it's being published in, in, in Friday's newspaper and uh, one of the things that struck me about the with the Powells was that um, Johanna talked about how impossible it was to actually get out into the world and how long you had to plan in advance even to get out to go to a wedding in a year's time or impossible to just go down the town and have a bite to eat or something but they did seem that they were within a community which is the community from from, from which Alan comes and presumably there's some level of kind of you know social and community support around there but the, the couple you're talking to tomorrow sound, sound incredibly isolated tell me about them so Rem and Nikki, uh, Rem is English, Nikki is Bulgarian, and they met in UCD uh, about uh, 15 years ago or so. They were both doing PhDs there. They got married and uh, their first daughter, Carl, was born in 2007. And she has um, very many disabilities and requires pretty much full-time care. And they... they uh, emailed me when the story came out over the weekend and I went to see them in their home. They live in Dublin. I went to see them on Wednesday of this week. I spent two hours with them and during that time Nikki cried four times and Rem I've, I don't think I've ever seen anybody's eyes sunk so far back in their head. 
he has severe and prolonged sleep deprivation because along with Carl, their daughter's many disabilities, she also has chronic insomnia and wakes up every night between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. And once she wakes up, she is, um, I suppose, on, to use the term. And one parent has to be with her then because otherwise she is in danger of being a damage and a danger to herself. So this has resulted in absolute um, unimaginable stress for the family because I would it's probably like having in, in one in one way if you think of having a constantly having a newborn baby um, for years and years and years and never having any ever any chance to catch up on your sleep um, Nikki said that she reckons Carl has not slept beyond 6 a.m. in the whole time she has been alive and it not only has a devastating impact on their personal life their social life um, but on they have a second child a daughter Tanya who's seven and essentially the family is not able to function as a unit Um, one parent must be with Carl at all times so Tanya is then taken out by the other parent and they I wasn't able to put this bit into the story but just to give an example of how difficult it is for them as a family Tanya who's seven as I said she won third prize in a little talent competition that her school had a couple of weeks ago or very recently and so they went it was during school time that the performance was so Carl was at her special school and Rem and Nikki went along to support Tanya in her performance and then to celebrate afterwards they were taking her for lunch and so they had just ordered sat down and ordered when Rem's phone rang and it was Carl's school to say that she had suffered another um, epileptic seizure and was going to be brought home so a parent had to be there to take her in and this happens regularly on a weekly basis so the one attempt that they had recently to have some time for Tanya and this isn't even all the four of them was again uh, wrecked because one parent had to leave in distress and they have to face that all the time. So and they're under terrible strain. They're under terrible strain and as Nikki said they're seeking, what they're seeking is um, three nights respite a week for Carl. They've been offered one night a month um, from January. So January and February they've been offered one night a month respite and then they've been told that it will be reviewed after that and they don't feel that they can cope with this, that it's not enough and as Nikki said to me, we've lost everything else and we're afraid that we will also lose our marriage. So that is um, that is the stress that they're and under. And they're because, partly because they're, they're long-time residents in Dublin but they're not from Ireland so they probably don't have even any kind of a, a social structure around them that some Irish families would have. They don't have any family here, either of them. And they did have many friends, but as Nikki said, to maintain your social network, you have to devote time to it, and they can't do that because it's just impossible for them to go out together as a family. And when they are out, which is, they told me they'd stop going out, I suppose Carl's behaviour is so disruptive that it's not possible for them to have normal socialising time with people so they need that respite it's, they need so, that respite Rosita, 
where do we where do you go with this and where do we go with this now well the i suppose the irish times this week have responded across various elements of the paper whether you know, there'll be various things in op-ed and in news and some of our foreign correspondents have written pieces um, talking about the situation for carers in their countries. So we're doing, you know, we're continuing with the coverage and people are still telling me their stories. But really, ultimately, the it's 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 quite simple, really. The it's it's great to have a conversation, but it has to mean something. And if there was some kind of action at a government level as a result of people trying to get their voices heard, then that would be a result for everybody. Well, you can hear the next, or you can read the next stories from Rosita in Friday's and Saturday's newspapers, and if you didn't read the original piece about the Powells, I highly recommend that you do. That's it for this edition of Inside Story. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're really interested to know what you think of this new series, so remember you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or find me on Twitter at hlinehan. And do remember also you can find our shows on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. And if you're a subscriber, we do always appreciate if you take a moment to rate or review the show, as it does do a lot to help us reach a wider audience. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.